This episode is brought to you by IG. The IG Smart Portfolios are a range of multi-asset strategies based on asset allocation insights from BlackRock. The portfolios are transparently designed around your risk profile and investment objectives. To find out more about the performance record and low fees, click the link below. Please be aware investing puts your capital at risk. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. For decades, people have seen rental property as their ticket to financial freedom. But regulatory changes and rising interest rates have squeezed yields, leaving investors to wonder, is the buy-to-let dream dead? I want to know if there's still money to be made in bricks and mortar. And in today's dumb question of the week, does property outperform the stock market over the long term? Okay, let's get into it. I think it's fair to say that in Britain, over the last two or three decades, the go-to investment for the majority of the population was buy-to-let. Going out, borrowing money from a bank, buying a house or a flat, and then trying to find someone to pay your mortgage for you. Do you speak to a lot of people who've gone down that path? I do. And it's kind of interesting. Some people absolutely love the idea of buy-to-let. Other people just would never even contemplate it because it is a lot of work. You compare that with buying a bond or a stock. There's so little work involved in capital markets. But with buy-to-let, it's just a nightmare from one end of the transaction to the other, from when you buy to when you sell and in between. Yeah, every time the toilet breaks. And I'm sure that there should be a new metric for this kind of investment called return on arse. How much work is involved in maintaining the investment? Return on us sounds like something else entirely. <laughs> There's a rental <laughs> yield involved. <laughs> oh, dear. Return on effort is what you mean, I think, to clarify for people. Yeah, but you see, that's going to have the same letters as return on equity. True. There's no way to solve this dilemma then. We'll have to go with return on us. <laughs> <laughs> but the stats just show how popular it became as a means of investment. So the number of landlords in the private rented sector in the UK grew from around 1.7 million in 1989 to over 4.5 million today. And that's according to Savills, the estate agency. And you can see why. If you have zero interest rates, why not? You know, you've got free money, you can lever up. There are lots of tax incentives to do it. Yeah. So it made perfect sense to do it. Yeah, I know people who've made a lot of money from buy-to-lets over the last couple of decades. But they're now saying the golden age is over. I still remember when I was working at this French investment bank, there was this chap who was working with us, but he had a string of about 20 different buy-to-let properties. And the guy was only about 25 or 30, you know, really young. Levered up to the gills. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've worked with people like that who just sort of nip out of the office at half three and say, oh, I've got to go and uh, take a look at one of these properties. Like, are you just having a second job on the side you're not talking about here? But maybe we should start by just saying what's good about it, because I think for that period when zero interest rates were around, it was certainly a very good investment, or at least it felt like it. The point is that if you do get somebody to pay the rent, and that rent is roughly linked with inflation, what effectively you've done is you've got a very expensive inflation-linked bond. It's going to pay you a steady stream of payments. Maybe it's a little bit patchy, the stream of payments, because you might not get full occupancy. There's maintenance involved, which you don't have with a bond. But in a sense, it's like an inflation-linked bond. And that meant that you could take more risk with the rest of your portfolio. 
And like an inflation-linked bond, we've had 40 years of falling interest rates up until recently, which was just a huge boon for house prices and for buy-to-let returns. But when that turns around, bond yields have spiked and bond prices have fallen. And if we're thinking of it as equivalent to buy-to-let, you can see why people are maybe starting to panic a bit in the market. Plus, everyone who I speak to who's got buy-to-let is all complaining about the changes in regulations. And we'll talk about those in a second. But I think it's a very different environment now from the one just a couple of years ago or maybe five years ago. I mean, just to give some sense of how widespread buy-to-let has become, private landlords now provide accommodation for almost 5 million households in Britain, which is approximately a fifth of the total. And in London, it's much higher. It's around 30% of London households are privately rented. And across the country, 80% of landlords are non-professional and own fewer than five rental properties. So it was something that everyone was going into, the man on the street. If they had a bit of spare cash, typically they weren't putting it into the stock market or bonds. They were putting it into real estate. And again, when I was working in the investment banking world, and this is the time when investment banking paid well. Right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't pay as well as it used to. But at that time, people were talking about buying properties in Europe. So they were talking about house prices surging and house prices were just going crazy. This was roughly 2007. And they said, don't worry, just go further east. Yeah, I remember someone bought a house in like Moldova or something. And he was like, this might be a scam. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, by the time we get to Eastern Europe, it's going to be a collapsing market. And sure enough. That's exactly what happened. And the point with all these new landlords who came into the market over the last 10 to 20 years is that they are very leveraged. 60% of landlords have a buy-to-let mortgage, and there are around 2 million buy-to-let mortgages in total in the UK. And a lot of those are interest-only mortgages, so they're super sensitive to interest rate moves. So really, this is a perfect setup for a collapse, isn't it? If you've got a large number of houses owned with leverage, in a market which is no longer a good market, where capital gains probably don't look so great and funding costs have surged, and you've got an overpriced market at that, well, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that, you know, that looks like a bubble. I mean, house prices are coming down, aren't they? They're down around 5% from the peak in nominal terms. It depends exactly which survey you look at. And in real terms, yeah, between 13 and 15% down from the peak which was in August last year. But like my mate Andrew Bailey says, we haven't felt the full impact of higher interest rates yet. And I think that tightening of policy is going to have a fairly long-lasting effect. We're just seeing the foothills of it really right now. That's certainly borne out in the data. So according to Hamptons, which is another estate agency, the average mortgage rate on outstanding landlord debt is 3.4% at the moment. And we know that the rate for new mortgages now is much higher than that. So for two or five year fixes, it's above 6%. So that shows there's a lot of pain still to come, right? If the average outstanding mortgage rate is 3.4 and everyone rolling off their fixed rate is going to be looking at over six, <laughs> yeah, we're still in the foothills, like you say. And it's really hard to see an outcome which doesn't involve lots of people leaving the buy-to-let market, you know, small landlords, like you were saying, with less than five properties. If anyone's going to buy those properties, it'll be people who are much more established, have much bigger portfolios, more money, maybe even private equity companies. Who knows? Maybe we'll have whole BlackRock funded housing estates. But if that doesn't happen, if we can't find large corporate buyers or 
larger buy-to-let investors to pick up those properties, then I think it would have quite a big negative effect on house prices. At the moment, it seems we're in a standoff to me, where sellers can still afford to just wait it out. They're not being pressured too much by the banks and buyers just can't afford the prices in the market, a lot of them. And certainly those mortgage rates will come down once inflation starts to fall and we do see interest rates start to fall as well. Bank rate will start to fall again, according to the Bank of England, by the end of this year. Yeah, there's one word I objected to in your sentence there, which was certainly, (laughs) let's hope so, but you never know. Maybe I should have just said eventually. (laughs) Yeah, you can never be wrong if you say eventually. Or transitory, in fact. But I think the mortgage costs being felt by landlords, there's just been a seismic shift there. So again, from Hamptons, they say that if you go back to November 2021, when rates were about at their cheapest, the average landlord spent 24% of their rental income on mortgage interest. Now that's jumped to 37% is going on mortgage interest. And they say that if rates stay at 6%, 64% of rental income will be going on mortgage interest. So margins are getting tighter and it just becomes less financially attractive. If you've got a choice between that and a government bond, which pays 5% yield, well, immediately you think, well, the return on ours, to use my new terminology, Michael, is definitely lower for the bond. This means I can't edit out return to ours now if we keep referencing (laughs) (laughs) Result. I mean, that's obviously true, isn't it? We've talked so many times about how rising bond yields make risky assets look less attractive. And that's especially true, I think, in housing, where, like you say, it's not passive in any sense of the word. So there's some work by Capital Economics, which has estimated what proportion of rental homes are going to become unprofitable once you reach a mortgage rate of 5%. And they think that it's going to be 11% of rental homes, so about 1 in 10. And that's going to increase to 21% for just a 1 percentage point increase in the rate. So if the mortgage rate increases to 6%, about a fifth of rental homes will become unprofitable. Yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? And that's based on the assumption of a 4.6% rental yield. And whatever analysis you look at, it does seem that landlord profitability is being heavily squeezed right now. So according to Lucian Cook, who's Savile's Director of Residential Research, his analysis shows that for buy-to-let investors with a 70% loan-to-value ratio, so basically means they've got a 30% deposit, on average, their investments would now not be profitable, which is quite a change. So at the start of last year, the net profit as a percentage of rent would have been around 20% for that kind of investor. And it's now, yeah, in the red. So just imagine you've got negative carry, you're having to effectively fund this investment, and it's costing you to do that. You're just throwing money into a black hole. And at the same time, probably we'll be seeing falling house prices. So you could be in a situation where you've got negative equity, negative carry, and an illiquid market. So you could see a lot of people run into financial problems as a result. Yeah, because your choice is you either have to plug the gap from your salary or your other income, or you have to try and sell the property, right? At a loss, potentially. Depends when you bought it, I guess. But we are seeing landlords sort of running for the exits, I think. So last year, there were apparently 35,000 net sales of properties by landlords. So the people who get out fast are probably the ones who are least likely to be trapped with negative equity. It really depends on when you bought, like you say. But it is affecting the composition of the UK housing market. So the number of homes available to rent in Britain is now a 14-year low, and we are seeing rents rise at almost the highest rate on record. 
but they're not rising fast enough to make up for the higher mortgage costs. If you see what I mean, there's this battle going on and renters are feeling squeezed and landlords are feeling squeezed. So probably the worst point hasn't been reached yet. But once it is reached, it's going to be pretty awful for some people. We are seeing repossessions of buy-to-let properties starting to tick up. It's off a very low base, but almost 500 rental properties were repossessed in Q2 this year, which is up 7% from the previous quarter. And also, if you look at the repayments, I think just under 2,000 landlords were delinquent. They were behind on their repayments. And that's for a sum which is totaling more than 10% of the outstanding loan. So these are definitely signs of distress, right? Little canaries in the coal mine saying, there may be problems in the buy-to-let market. And I mentioned about this kind of battle where renters are feeling super squeezed and landlords are feeling super squeezed. And there was a nice bit of work again by Hamptons, which said that if you were a typical landlord and you were refinancing your mortgage from a 2.2% two-year fix, which is kind of normal a few years ago, to the new rates of 6%, to make yourself whole again, you'd need to raise rents by 31%. And I guess in a sense, the landlords don't have complete choice about what rents they set. So banks are going to insist that they're going to have a minimum interest coverage ratio, where you look at the rent relative to the interest on the loan. And the current interest coverage ratios, I think, are around 125% to 145%. And there was an interesting article in The Telegraph called Why Britain's Buy-to-Let Dream is Dying. And they said, with the higher mortgage costs, if landlords were going to try and absorb them themselves, the number of mortgages where the interest coverage ratio falls below that 125% limit would increase from 3% at the start of this year to more than 40% by next year. So that would be a huge number of mortgages, which are sort of in breach of the bank's covenants then. So either rent has to go up or you have to try and add more equity, I guess. Or sell the property, yeah. Are you in the market for more? Our sponsor for today's episode is IG. IG are known for their trading and share dealing platform, but they also have the IG smart portfolios. These are expertly managed investments tailored to your needs. The IG smart portfolios are designed by BlackRock and fully managed by IG. Each portfolio caters for a different risk appetite, ranging from conservative to aggressive and follows an investment strategy suited to your goals and profile. You will be able to manage your investment account fully online with transparency over asset allocation, performance and fees. IG Smart Portfolios can also be held in an ISA or SIP with no minimum investment period or additional hidden fees. To see which portfolio is suited for you, click the link in our description and find out more. Please be aware investing puts your capital at risk. What are you hearing then on calls with people? You say a lot of people have buy to let. Is there any sense of panic or are people just sort of working through this and they can move money around? Well, I don't know if it's because the people I speak to are very savvy, but they've usually got quite low leverage and also they understand the cycle. So they were trying to delever when interest rates were low, trying to pay off as much of the capital as they could. And then they're not beholden to the banks anyway, which makes a lot of sense, I think. But maybe it was just the very sophisticated level of people I speak to that's selected (laughs) for people without any kind of crisis. What they do complain about is the legislation behind it. So, for example, the thing which lots of people are unhappy about, one of them, is called Section 24 of the 2015 Finance Act. 
before this was changed, you could actually just pay tax only on the income received minus the mortgage payments. So net, in other words, net income. After this was changed, you had to pay tax on gross rental income, which of course can be massively different. And suddenly the leverage becomes more painful. So higher interest rates combined with that change is not great. Well, I think you can still offset 20%, can't you? But previously you could offset the whole lot. Yeah, it's a big change. And like you say, when interest rates were low, you could kind of look through it. But now rates have gone high. If you can't offset those mortgage payments, it's painful. So the tax system has gone from being very favourable for buy-to-let investors to quite unfavourable. Like the tax treatment is far worse than shares, I would say, because you're obviously paying high rates of stamp duty when you buy a property. You can't offset the mortgage payments fully, like you just said. You've got to pay capital gains tax on the sale. You can't put your buy-to-let property in an ISA, for example. So there's a lot of change there in a short period of time, which I'm not saying is a bad thing from a public policy point of view, but from an investor's point of view, regulatory risk has been realised here. But it's not just the tax system, is it, that's made buy-to-let less attractive? Now, the law's changing to make it more favourable for renters than the landlord. So, for example, previously you could give your tenants two months' notice via something called a Section 21 notice, but that's likely to be rescinded, so you won't be able to do that anymore. Yeah, and the proposed renters reform bill is supposedly going to ban no-fault evictions. It's got held up in Parliament at the moment, but we'll see if it goes through. And obviously there was the ban on evictions during the pandemic. So I know a lot of landlords had tenants which just didn't pay any rent for you know a year or more, and they couldn't do anything about it. And the courts are backlogged. And then in Scotland, there's you know a rental freeze or rental cap going on, which is probably every landlord's worst nightmare. And I think that is bad public policy, if I can go out on a limb there. Gosh, this all sounds so negative, as if there's a kind of war between the landlord and the renters. But when we were renting in Amersham, we absolutely loved our landlord. Laura treated him like a son. <laughs> it was really sweet. He was a lovely bloke. I don't think that's everyone's experience, though. OK. So I think from a renter's point of view, they feel that rents have been going up at crazy levels. For example, for newly let properties, the rent is now around 25% higher than it was before the pandemic in just a few years. And renters in the UK are now spending an average of 32% of their salary on rent. And in London, it's almost 40% of their salary. So, you know, you can't really save for a deposit for a house or anything else, really, can you, if you're spending 40% of your income? And that's just on the rent, right? That doesn't include council tax and all the other costs of living. But this has broader implications. I think, you know, if people haven't got disposable income, it's going to affect other stuff and spending on things like consumer discretionary spending. So this is almost certain to have a negative effect on economic activity in the UK. But of course, this is how monetary policy works. And this is what happens right before you get significant price falls, isn't it? Yeah. You have to get to the point where affordability is just at its limit. So there was an ONS survey a couple of months ago, which showed that 43% of tenants say that they have difficulty affording rental payments. So if landlords, you know, need to keep raising rent by a huge amount to meet their mortgage payments, but they can't do that because people literally just can't afford to pay the rent, then something has to give. And if it becomes relatively cheaper to own a property, which for us it was, you know, after we stopped renting, we were paying less now in mortgage than we were previously in rent. Although I've got to say, this house is like a sieve. Every time it rains, we get some new leaks springing up somewhere. I thought you had your roof fixed. We did. 
But then the neighbour sent me this photo a few days ago showing this tile which had just slipped out of place. And then we found new damp patches all over the house. So, yeah. We'll have to delete this podcast if you ever try to sell the house. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a lovely house, but it was built in 1906. So it's got real character. It's been around for a while. You sound just like an estate agent. It's got real character. <laughs> oh, I love it. I really like this house. What's your sense then? How does this end? Do house prices fall further? Do landlords keep exiting the market? What does it depend on? I think the problem at the moment is that wage growth in the UK has been really brisk and that's pushed up service inflation. And that means the Bank of England is going to be keeping rates higher for longer. And that's a real problem. And if we don't have inflation falling quickly enough, then we're going to be facing a lot of pain because that's just going to extend the period for which people are going to suffer this kind of interest payment distress and probably exacerbate the sell-off in property as more people have to leave the rental market. More landlords have to sell into a distressed market and prices would obviously fall. But if we do get inflation falling faster than expected, then maybe everything will be okay. So everything hinges on interest rates and Andrew Bailey? Of course. But seriously though, it's pretty much it, isn't it? I bet that is pretty much it, yeah. The property market's highly leveraged, so it just depends on interest rates. But if it's any comfort, I think what you do see is that if you look at inflation compared to other countries, What's pretty clear is that the UK spiked a bit higher and it's taking a bit longer to fall. Hopefully it is just a bit longer because for other countries such as the US, they were early to go into the inflation spike, but they've been early to come out. Also, other countries in Europe have been quicker to come out of the inflation spike. So hopefully ours is just a little bit delayed. Certainly not only the UK that's experiencing troubles in its housing market now. But I guess the flip side here, if you're not sensitive to interest rates, i.e. if you've got a lot of cash and are looking for opportunities, maybe they will present themselves because cash buyers, I presume, are going to be able to get really good deals if landlords are desperate to exit and the buyers just aren't there. Which, as we know, is about a third of households in the UK which own their house outright. So I think for certain people, this is going to be a good opportunity. But I think there'll be more distressed people than there will be people in a position to run out and snap up a bargain. Just the people that talk to you are able to snap <laughs> up a bargain. <laughs> you deleverage at the perfect time. So if you want to learn about joining pension... <laughs> <laughs> so just to wrap this up, would you ever buy a buy-to-let property? Would you ever consider it? I did think about it a while ago, a long while ago, and it was because the interest rates were so low. No, it was because all your friends in investment banking were saying we're all buying properties. Well, yeah, I mean, you, could, you literally couldn't get into a lift without people talking about their buy-to-let properties. And I just thought, well, maybe it's something to look at. But then I did research it and it did seem like a lot of work. If you're the kind of person that can retile a kitchen or rewire a house, sure, it would make sense. But for me, I'm totally dependent on people who are au fait with the physical world. I'm not. <laughs> You're a physicist. <laughs> yeah, but I'm also a person who's into investment. Theoretical. Yeah. So I like things which are a little bit more abstract, a little bit less physical. Also, I think it's a very concentrated investment. It requires yeah. a lot of capital. It's capital intensive. It's also concentrated because if it's in one country, it depends on the economy in that country. Depends on one house's roof staying on. Indeed. So liquidity takes on a whole new meaning in our house. And of course, you've got the problem with the liquidity 
for real, which is that if there's a falling market, you may have trouble selling it. So all these reasons mean that for me, it's not a great investment. Yeah, I think the stress of it is the thing that puts me off, even if yields were good. And I know that when people calculate their rental yields, they're not factoring in their time, right? The time they spend fixing the roof and the boiler and all that stuff. If you priced it at your average hourly rate, I don't think those yields look so good. (laughs) And come on, now that gilt yields are so much higher, you'd have to have a pretty good yield to make it worthwhile. I think people were relying on the capital gain. A lot of people were, rather than the income. And it's hard to see house prices rising a lot anytime soon. So you heard how clued up pension crafters are? Well, that's not purely happenstance. If you want to learn more about investment by becoming a member of our community, then simply go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, does property outperform the stock market over the long term? Personally, I think it doesn't. And this is based on my standard go-to, which is Dimson Marsh Staunton. And what they showed was that in most countries, particularly the US, interestingly, house prices keep up with inflation and little more. So in their 2018 Credit Suisse Global Returns yearbook, it's like quoting the Bible, they tracked 11 housing markets across the world and looked at the real rate of house price growth from 1900 to 2017. Now, the best performing market of all of them was Australia, and that just managed to generate 2.2% capital gain. Whereas if you look at the US, it was just 0.3%. So it's pretty much just kept up with inflation. And the UK was also not much better, 1.8% real capital gain. And as we know, that's a long way below the typical return of the stock market. Which is over 6%. Now, I'm sick of you quoting Dimson, Marsh and Staunton <laughs> every single week. So I tried to find an alternative source of information here. And I came across a nice paper called The Rate of Return on Everything from 1870 to 2015. And this is a working paper from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And they have a lovely table comparing equity and housing real returns for 16 different countries. And their data looks a little different to what you just quoted because it does include the income in the yield, not just the capital gain. But what it shows is similar in that equity outperforms housing in the UK. So for the period of 1870 to 2015 in the UK, they say equity returns 7.2% per year real and housing returned 5.4% real. USA, similar, a little bit higher for both. 8.4% for equity, 6% for housing. But what's quite interesting is that for some countries, it is the other way around, and housing beat the stock market. So for the full sample in France, equity generated 3.3% and housing 6.5%. Yeah, so there are definitely examples where it's the other way around such as France and Belgium and Portugal. Netherlands is kind of neck and neck, isn't it? But one of the interesting things from this table is that it shows the return broken down by different periods of time. And if you look at the post-war period, so after 1950, equity does massively outperform housing. And if you look at the post-1980 returns, equity absolutely smashes housing. So on a weighted average basis, Equity returned 9% post 1980 across these countries, and housing returned 5.4%. I 
I remember seeing a graph from Savills which tracks UK property prices going back well before the First World War. And what's interesting there is we went from some kind of semi-feudal system where essentially you couldn't own property unless you were a a baron or something. (laughs) Whereas after the Second World War, it became much more acceptable for people to own parcels of land. You didn't have to have a title. So maybe some of these early high returns are due to that liberalisation of the market. Yeah, I think so. So the authors of the paper say, this country-level evidence reinforces one of our main findings. Housing has offered a similar return to equity in the majority of countries and time periods, and possibly better in some cases. In the long run, housing outperformed equities in absolute terms in six countries, and equities outperformed housing in five. Returns on the two assets were about the same in the remaining five countries. However, after World War II, housing was the best performing asset class in just three countries and equities in nine. That's what we said. There was a real change after the war. And I think the important point here as well is as an investment. So this is not the house you live in. This is an income generating rental property that we're talking about. So total return obviously is going to include the rent. Yeah, you need the rent to make these numbers work. But there is something that housing often has going for it in terms of the way people invest, which is that people borrow the money and lever up and amplify their returns. Whereas you don't typically do that with the stock market as a retail investor. Yeah, that's right. It's just completely normal to have leverage in this market. So your capital outlay is quite small and potentially you could have big gains as a result of that. Also, I think the illiquidity, although we've talked about it as a negative thing, could be seen as a positive thing. If it's really easy to sell your investment, you're not going to hold on to it for a long period of time. Whereas if it's illiquid and a real pain and expensive to sell, which housing is, you're more likely to stick with it for longer. So I think that encourages good behaviour, which is to buy and hold for a long period of time. Yeah, but I don't like that argument. It's kind of like saying, I'm not going to correct my behaviour. I'm going to invest in something less attractive to force me to behave right. Just fix your (laughs) behaviour. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.